So this morning we begin with one of the most fundamental questions, which would appear to have one of the most obvious answers in all of Scripture. What must I do to be saved? Notably, however, the answer is not so obvious and not so obviously fastened on. There's been historic controversy about it, and there's been a contemporary controversy. So first we'll look at the historic controversy, and then the contemporary controversy. What must I do to be saved? The historic controversy was basically the position of the medieval church. We now call it the Roman Catholic Church, but basically the position of the medieval church was that two things were necessary for our salvation. One was the death of Christ, and the other was our obedience. And it led to a lot of perplexity, especially for people who wondered if they were good enough. Now, Martin Luther is a famous reformer, probably suffered from OCD, because he obsessed over all of the little sins in his life. And he would go into confession for four hours at a time, walk out of confession, and turn and go right back in, because as he walked out, he remembered something else he hadn't confessed. Out of his own perplexity and his own struggle with the question of, was he obeying enough? Was he good enough to be saved? He developed a a new understanding of Scripture based on the book of Romans that our salvation is dependent solely on the death of Christ. On Christ alone, he took his stand. Now, there's terminology used for this. The medieval thought was that righteousness is infused. Hmm. Maybe I need to stop here for just a moment. This is Sunday morning, and we're going to head into one of the more mm, subtle and complicated sermons or issues or passages that we've ever dealt with. There was a TED Talk recently by an online cartoonist who talked about his experience. He had more experience of broader interest than just online cartooning. He had taught a physics class once to high schoolers who took a, like a weekend class at MIT and he was in charge of teaching this. And he was trying to teach them about how you can calculate the amount of work necessary, the amount of effort necessary to accomplish a certain task. And so he taught them a formula and said, for example, let's say we want to move this five kilogram weight six meters. And all of their eyes glazed over because no one ever moves five kilograms, six meters. He realized maybe what they do is they they lift a a gallon of milk and they take it into the kitchen. Or take it from the kitchen into the dining room. And so then he tried to develop, use that as an illustration, much more concrete illustration. So that lies wouldn't glaze over. And then he actually thought a little bit further, because this was a couple decades ago, and Empire Strikes Back had just been out, and he said, how much energy did Yoda require to lift Luke Skywalker's X-Wing out of the, help me out, Deba? You, you know, I haven't seen any of the movies. Anyway, and I don't care, I'm never going to see one of the, I'm going to die without seeing those movies. Okay. <laughs> But the point was, then they got engaged. Now, we're going to talk, not theology really this morning. We're going to talk about how do we get into heaven. 
while some of the terms we're going to be used are theological, this is how are we going to get into heaven or how are we going to have eternal life? And not only is it not only about the distant future, it's also about the present. How do we live now so that we can have an ongoing, lively relationship with God? So hang in there with some of the theological terms. Not only are we going to talk about our future salvation and our present relationship with God, we're also going to take a look at some of the lyrics of some of the hymns we sang, because this theology in these hymns that we often overlook, and not all the theology is entirely accurate. And it affects how we have a relationship with God now and how we have a relationship with God for eternity. So, back to the medieval church and the reformers. So, the medieval church, the idea is that for us to have salvation, we need two things. We need the death of Christ to atone for our sin, and we need obedience. And this was called infused righteousness. What God does for us is that he takes Christ's righteousness, imparts it into us, and that transforms us, and on that basis, we have salvation. Infused righteousness. Whereas Luther taught it was not death of Christ and obedience, purely the death of Christ. And in, in contrast to infused righteousness, he talked about imputed righteousness. Christ's death, imputed, transferred. Christ's death, the, the implications of Christ's death, the, the value of Christ's death is transferred from him to me. And the disability of my sin, the consequences, the guilt of my sin, that's transferred from me to Christ. And his righteousness is imputed to me. It's credited to me as if it was my own. And that was the substance of the issue between the Roman Catholic Church and the early Protestants. And basically the slogan that the Catholic Church used was, the medieval church used was, faith working in love. Whereas for Luther, the operative slogan is this, faith alone. Although, he quickly added, saving faith is never alone. Now, the medieval church was very concerned about Luther. Actually, there was threats against his life and there's the excommunication. Because they said, look, if you teach salvation is through faith alone, then people are going to say they believe in Jesus and they're going to live any way they want because they think they're getting to heaven. And it's going to just lead to all sorts of wickedness. The irony is this. Luther did not teach faith alone, and it doesn't matter how you live. He taught faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. But his followers, even during his lifetime, his followers did just the thing that the Roman Catholic Church was afraid of. They said, if salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, then we can live any way we want. And Luther compared his generation to, because he was German, he compared his generation to drunken pe German peasants. He said, the fellow falls off the donkey on one side. That is, faith and works are necessary for salvation. Then he clambers back up on the donkey, faith alone, and then he falls off on the other side, faith alone, so it doesn't matter how we live. And in fact, now in a contemporary controversy, we actually have something called the free grace movement, where Famous pastors write books and, and preach sermons promoting this very thing that the Catholic Church was worried about and that Luther fought against. And, and you can never teach heresy as heresy, or you can never teach error as error. You've got to teach error under Christian terms. It's, it's called the free grace movement. 
Because salvation is by grace through faith alone, then it really doesn't matter how you... Well, yeah, God cares about how you live. But he'll still accept you by grace through faith, even if you do the worst of things. And one author in his book illustrated a drug addict mother pimping out her two or three-year-old daughter in order to get drugs, to support, in order to get money to buy drugs to support her habit. And he picked the most scandalous example he could use in order to emphasize that salvation is purely by grace, totally graced, totally through faith alone. And, and it matters how we live, but not consequentially. Not eternally doesn't make it matters. The death of Christ alone. Now there is another movement today in response to this. Now, it, to be fair, the free grace movement is responding to legalism of the 1950s and 1960s, where there was a lot of legalism in churches like ours that was very strict and very particular about how people live and, and all sorts of details about, you know, hair length, uh, uh, whether you wore bell-bottom jeans, whether you drank or smoked, or all sorts of rules and regulations, whether you went dancing or watched movies at the, t at the cinema or watched TV. And Free Grace reacted to that. Now there's another movement today called the, uh, the Gospel Coalition with some famous pastors. You could call it, sometimes they're referred to as Neo-Calvinists. And their emphasis is that they're correcting the free grace movement, and they say, no, no, no. Or then they're also correcting the, the Catholic theology. They're saying, no. Two things matter. The death of Christ and his life of holiness. And it's still imputed righteousness, but both of those things are imputed to us. Not just his death for our, to atone for our sin. You know, it's not good enough that we be sinless. We've got to be virtuous. So Christ passes us two things. He passes us his death for our sin, that takes away our sin, and then he passes us his obedience. He transfers his obedience to us, and he transfers his atoning death to us. And so our sin is taken away, and his holiness is ascribed to our account. And so this is called hmm, passive and active righteousness. Now, passive does not mean what we take it to mean in English, okay? Passive does not mean you just sit there like that, huh? Passive is, you know, from the same word that we get the Latin term from which we get the passion of Jesus. So Jesus does two things to ensure our salvation. He suffers for us, his passion. His passive righteousness, the suffering of his passion is ascribed to our account, atoning for our sin. And then his active righteousness, throughout his life, he perfectly obeyed God. And because of that, that righteousness passes to us. So our sin is taken away, our, our righteousness from Christ is added to us, and because of that, we can, we can have a relationship with God now and eternity with God at the end of time. So the free grace movement stresses faith alone, and the gospel coalition recovers the historic reform doctrine, faith alone, yet saving faith is never alone. Now, basically then there's these three options. We are saved through the death of Christ and our obedience. Option one, medieval church. We're saved by the death of Christ through faith alone, and obedience is preferred but optional, not absolutely required. That's the contemporary free grace movement. And then what I've identified here is 2B, the reform movement, the reform teaching of Luther, Calvin, the reformers and neo-reformers, neo-Calvinists will teach we're saved by the death and life of Christ through faith alone.
Yet saving faith is never alone. The first two are just plain wrong. The third is incomplete. Let's take a look at how it reflects in our hymnody. Uh, You know, we just sang this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Which of these three positions is that? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. You see, that's the passive and active obedience. That's actually, yeah, to be, right. It's uh, <laughs> to be. I, I, if you waited longer, I would have offered you a gift certificate, but you answered before I offered it, so we did, you lose out. Okay. The active and passive righteousness of Christ. By the, by the death and life of Christ. Here we go. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his death, his passive righteousness, his, his passion. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' death. And his righteousness, his obedience to God throughout his life, both his death applied to me and his obedience applied to me, and my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, no. No, no, no. My hope is necessarily built on something much more than just Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Romans will tell us, and my hope is built on much more than just Jesus' holiness in his life and his death for us. Or we sing, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. This theology redeems something very important. It's trying to make a very important positive point. We are not saved by Christ's death and our obedience. But in trying to make that point, it's Christ's death, not our obedience. It's Christ alone, not our obedience. But in trying to make that point, it slips into an unfortunate half-truth, you could say. Because... When Christ comes with trumpet sound and all we can offer him is his death for us and his life of submission to God, if that's all we have to offer him, then we won't be saved. The Gospels was clear about that. Jesus is clear about that. Romans is clear about that. Uh, We sang another song here, um, In Christ Alone. You see, there's something very valuable about all this doctrine, is that the death of Jesus for our sin is crucial for our salvation. There's something also very valuable about what the, the Gospel Coalition is emphasizing, not just his death, but his life of righteousness is crucial for our salvation. The atoning death of Christ, his righteousness, his Alien righteousness on our behalf, alien, outside of us. It's not infused, it's not within us, it's imputed to us, it's outside of us. The death of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, both crucial for our salvation. But Jesus said, and Romans says, that is, that's all we have to offer Jesus. Then our, our standing before God is very unstable, very insecure and highly suspect.
It's got to be more than that. And so we sang in Christ alone. And notice, interesting how this song develops. A very good song in most respects. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. Now, the first way Christ is our foundation is in crisis. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled when striving cease. In crisis, Jesus sustains us. And Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. His incarnation, the song affirms, rightly. Scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus' atoning death, again crucial for our salvation. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. Jesus' resurrection crucial for our salvation. All crucial. But not sufficient. What must I do to be saved? There's these three theories. By the death of Christ through faith and obedience. By the death of Christ through faith alone and obedience is optional. By the death and life of Christ through faith alone yet saving faith is never alone. I would submit to you that the fourth answer is the more accurate and sufficient one. By the death of Christ through faith alone, yet saving faith is never alone. Why is saving faith never alone? Romans 6 would tell us, because the death of Christ is not alone. Christ does more than live a holy life and then die for us. Christ does more than that. Romans 6, Christ rises from the dead, but Christ does more than that. Romans 6 is the resurrection, but it's not the resurrection of Christ, purely that. It's the resurrection of Christ, not from the grave. The resurrection of Christ within me. What Romans 6 tells us is that Christ has died. And he's resurrected. He resurrected from the grave physically. But he does more than that. Christ now indwells me and transforms me. Or in Romans 8, it's phrased differently. Christ gives me his spirit, which transforms me. And this is crucial for, for my salvation. We take a look at it quickly through Romans, um, through Romans 8. It, it, Romans is set up in this context, which is really like medieval Catholicism. In Romans, it, there are opponents that are attacking for Paul for his theology. And what they're arguing is that we're saved through the, by the death of Christ through faith, but plus obedience. We're saved by the death of Christ and obedience. And, and so the Judaizers were saying, look, now that you're Christians, you have to obey the Bible. In order to be saved, now that you're Christians, you, you have the, Christ died for you, and now you must obey the Bible. A lot of us would be comfortable with that. And Paul says, no. We're, we're not saved because of two things. We're not saved because Christ died and because we obey. We're saved by only one thing. Romans 3, 21 to 26. We're saved because Christ died. Only one reason we're saved. Only one basis, only one ground by which we're saved. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, Apart from the law, apart from obedience to the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness is given through faith in Christ alone to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. We're saved through the shedding of Christ's blood. We're saved through the atoning death of Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to receive by faith. We're saved by the atoning death of Christ received through faith alone. Now, in response to that, you know, it's like, like the Catholic Church, medieval church responding to Luther. The, the Judaizers respond to the Apostle Paul and said, how can this be? Because if we're saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through the atoning death of Christ alone, then people will live any way they want. And Paul, you see, they object in chapter 6, verse 1. We see this objection. What shall we say then, Paul responds to them? Shall we go on sinning? Now that we're allowed to? Now that grace will forgive our sins, should we go on sinning? And Paul retorts, no. Why not? Chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And he doesn't mean a resurrection in the future. That's true, but that's not what he's talking about. If we died with Christ, we will also live with him now. For we know that since Christ was died from, was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Verse 10. The death he died, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. And so if we died with Christ, if we're with Christ, we died with him, we'll also live with him. Which means the death he died, he died to sin. The death we died, we died to sin. And the life he lives, he lives to God. The life we live, we live to God. Christ indwells us now. And what happened to him, his atoning death, counts for us our death. Our death to sin. And what happened to him, his resurrection from the grave, that happens to us. Our resurrection from sin into life with God. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. And if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Therefore, Paul says in verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer your, any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as a servant of righteousness. You see, his point is, Christ has done two things for us. Christ has died to atone for our sin. Christ has risen and indwells us to give us new life. Uh, this thing that Christ has done for us is not just a, a transaction on paper, an accounting transaction on paper, where now Christ is viewed as a sinner and we're viewed as the saints. Christ is also transforming us. Gradually, bit by bit, over the course of our lifetimes, it will still be incomplete until we see Christ and are glorified by Christ. But two works of Christ, not just one, his atoning death and his transforming life. So back to the initial questions. What must we do to be saved? It's the death of Christ alone through faith alone. Romans chapter 3, Paul is rebuking the idea that we're saved by faith and obedience. And yet, saving faith is never alone. He's rebuking the notion that obedience is optional. 
And at the same time, he's affirming two works of God. The risen Christ indwelling us by his spirit, not just his atoning death. And this is where the notion of the active righteousness of Christ is a slippery slope. We are saved by the atoning death of Christ. But we are not saved without some transformation occurring within us. It's not just that Jesus produces holiness that he transfers to us. He produces holiness within us. Maybe we rewrite these songs. I don't, I'm not a lyricist. It doesn't fit the meter or the rhyme. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh no, my hope is built on something more. It's built on Jesus' blood and his righteousness. It's built on his atoning death and his risen indwelling presence. My hope is built on two things, not just one. When he shall come with trumpet sound, or may I then him be found dressed in his righteousness. No, I don't want to be dressed in his righteousness alone. I, I want to be dressed in the righteousness that comes from his atoning death. But I also want to be dressed in the righteousness that comes from his transforming spirit within me. And therefore, stand faultless before the throne. In Christ alone, my hope is found by his incarnation, by his atoning death, by his resurrection, and by his life within me, transforming me into his image. Let's pray together.